Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology and society and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. Today's topic is coral bleaching, which is one of the processes that is slowly killing the Great Barrier Reef. The Great Barrier Reef is listed as a World Heritage Site and is one of the seven wonders of the world. A UNESCO report released in 2016 titled Destinations at Risk, World Heritage and Tourism in a Changing Climate outlined how many World Heritage Sites were being compromised by the impacts of climate change. The Great Barrier Reef was on this list, and rightly so. But after some protests from the Australian government, it was taken off of this list. Now this is bizarre, given that last year the reef experienced the worst bleaching event to date, with 93% of the coral being affected. This is an issue that is literally close to home for me, because I live in Queensland, Australia, the state that the reef is found in. The reef is a huge source of tourism, generating upwards of $6 billion annually and employing close to 70,000 people. Now, there's been a bit of controversy in the region recently as the construction of the new Carmichael coal mine is set to begin later on this year. This mine will be the biggest coal mine in Australia. Scientists have estimated that burning the coal extracted from the mine will generate 4.7 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions, which will eat up more than 0.5% of the world's remaining carbon budget if it is to cap global warming at 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Environmental groups have voiced numerous concerns about the mine's impact on the Great Barrier Reef. Dr. Charlie Vernon, former chief scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science and one of the world's foremost marine scientists, said, There is no single action that could be as harmful to the Great Barrier Reef as the Carmichael coal mine. It is absurd that a government who is focused on jobs and growth is happy to support a project that will not only further jeopardize the sanctity of one of the natural wonders of the world, but is only projected to create 1,500 jobs, which is significantly less than the figure of 10,000 that the mining company behind the mine, Adani, quotes. In contrast to this, the Australian Conservation Foundation predicts that 2,700 direct jobs would be created in Queensland if the 10 new solar farm projects currently under construction by the Australian Renewable Energy Agency go ahead. Can someone please show me how supporting the Carmichael coal mine promotes national interests, which is a term that honestly infuriates me at times as it's used to justify just about everything. You know, the last time I checked, Dealing with this climate change thing is a pretty important national interest. And for those of you listening out there who are not in Australia, this is an issue that obviously affects you as well, because the reef is a marvel of the world that everyone should see in their lifetime. And who knows, in time, it may just be a skeleton. And even if you don't give a damn about the reef, the carbon emissions from this mine will have an impact on your life. After all, the issue of climate change affects everyone on this green and blue rocky spaceship. I don't even think I'm really getting political here. This is just complete ignorance in the face of the facts. Regardless of where you stand in politics, we can all agree that decisions should be made in light of the facts. But this is not a new issue, of course. It's something that has hamstrung our development for millennia. If you're listening to this and you're thinking, okay, what can I do to help the reef? Head to fightforourreef.org.au. Or just head to talkoftoday.com and check out the show notes. All of the links will be posted there.
If you stick around to the end of the episode, you'll hear more talk about this topic. We'll briefly discuss how climate change is an example of the economic problem of the tragedy of the commons, and how this is just a symptom of a far larger global problem that sovereignty brings about. There will also be a mention of a possible solution we've got cooking, and you can find more about that at www.globalcitizenship.today. The site is just a placeholder at the moment, and uh, I don't even think it's optimized for mobile, but the important thing is uh, we're getting the idea out there, so check it out. Anyway, in today's podcast, we are joined by Brett Lewis. Brett is a researcher at Queensland University of Technology, which we might refer to as QT in the interview. We're talking about the process that is slowly killing the reef, coral bleaching. We're also going to chat about why is the reef so important, other than the fact that the reef is freaking beautiful, home to thousands of species of fish, birds, and other animals, and six of the world's seven species of threatened marine turtles. So in 2015, Brett and the team at QUT captured the first video of coral bleaching in action, which went viral on the science side of the internet, with views totaling upwards of 6 million. I highly recommend you all check it out. It's hauntingly beautiful. Brett and his research have been featured at the World Science Festival in Brisbane, TEDx, and will be in documentaries by the BBC, HBO, and PBS. In our conversation, we cover coral bleaching, the Great Barrier Reef, the importance of science communication, and confronting the trolls. I hope you enjoy the show. I'm Brett Lewis. I am a research researcher here at QUT. I look at uh, earth and coral reef systems. So we look at the way that the Earth's atmosphere interacts with uh, the changing Earth atmosphere interacts with biological life on the Great Barrier Reef and how that can be reflected in the fossil record as well. So we're looking at uh, quite a vast array of different things and we're trying to get a better understanding of life now and life in the past. Mm-hmm. So earlier on uh, in 2016, there was a video that you know, made its rounds on the internet uh, that you were involved in. Or did you, you captured the, the, the footage, right? Yeah. Could yeah. you just talk about uh, what that was and uh, what its significance is? So uh, in it was in 2014. Oh, 2014. And I, no, no oh, 2016 yeah. was right. Uh-huh. I was um, in 2014. I started doing some filming. Uh, I got a hold of um, some equipment that where I could do, instead of doing just single images that I was used to doing for my research, I started doing some video. And one of the things I wanted to do was have a look at the way coral move, the way coral walk. Um, and that's been something that I've been really interested in capturing because some coral can walk. Okay, uh, I guess before we, before we get into this, can we just, what is coral? Because in my mind, you know, coral is just this, this big uh, aquatic, uh, you know, structure, for yeah. lack of a better word. I mean, that's not that far from the truth. So it is a big aquatic structure. So if you think of, um, you've got to think of coral as in, there's essentially two types of coral that we, I will be discussing uh, and talking about, and they're called reef building coral. Um, one of those is really, really gets quite large. Like you said, be these big structures, and those structures are made up of um, tiny little organisms known as polyps, and these polyps build the corals when they have an interlocking tissue and they just basically secrete out a skeleton which builds and builds over time and gets quite large and once it dies off, new coral grows over the, the top of it and that's what creates reefs. Um, so these structures are called colonial corals um, and they're 
pretty much 99% of the Great Barrier Reef is going to be made up of these corals. Then there's the 1%, which is uh, solitary corals. So they're smaller. Um, they usually only have one single polyp, but that polyp is really large. Well, relatively speaking, you know, some of the polyps on the colonial corals can be, uh, you know, anywhere from one millimetre to uh, five, ten millimetres. And are they all the same, uh, like physiologically, uh, are they all the same? Like, is it like just grabbing the corner of a, you know, a box on Word and then increasing the, yeah, the size? Increase. So well, in the co within the colonies, they usually will be. Uh, there are variances, um, but... But so the one that's one millimeter is basically the same as one. No, that, one okay. that's no, no. So um, they vary very much across the board, and we're able to classify through these morphological features um, how uh, which corals are which. Um, but the ones that I was talking about with the the migration are the solitary corals. So we're looking at the way that these corals move, and that was the coral that you saw in the video. Okay. And that was the, um, we were actually looking to see if it would walk. And then we decided that we would raise the temperature and see what happens. And so then we started running experiments in that area. And then we documented, of course, coral bleaching uh, and the pulsed inflation behind coral bleaching for the first time. So it was a way for the public to actually see what's happening to coral when we increase the temperature on the Great Barrier. So Area. what exactly is coral bleaching? So... Coral bleaching is essentially the easiest way to look at it is a, it's a breakup. Um, w coral are a lot different to us, but in some ways, I mean, not many people know that we rely on our gut bacteria and um, all different types of bacteria to survive, um, you know, uh, to keep us healthy. Um, in some ways, the algae that lives within the coral's tissue is similar to that bacteria. We need it. It's a relationship that we have with our bacteria. And it's a relationship that this coral has with this algae. And it's a breakup in this relationship. So what happens is the temperatures rise, um, they go beyond what the algae can um, cope with. And so the algae photosynthesize. And, so, and what is the relationship between the algae and the coral? Sorry. The relationship between coral and its algae is one where the algae produces through photosynthesis heaps of energy. Most of the reef building coral that we're talking about, which is the 99%, um, is going to be about uh, upwards of 70 to 95% of its energy is taken through photosynthesis that is produced through photosynthesis. So if you lose that algae at any point or that algae stops producing the way that it should, you're going to start to starve the coral. But there is also another feedback cycle, which is really quite dangerous. And that's what we see is the coral needs to expel this algae. This breakup is so violent that it needs to get it out of its tissue um, because photosynthesis requires quite stable temperatures or within this algae requires uh, stable temperatures. And if those temperatures go above what they're supposed to or what's normal for a prolonged period of time, that photosynthesis stops. It basically, we get this feedback cycle of oxygen. The oxygen oxidizes the coral. So oxidizing is in basically rusts. Um, so you think of your car and it rusting away. That's essentially what this does. And that's toxic to the coral. So the coral has to remove it. So it does that and moves it out of the, um, the tissue. And this video showed that happening. It shows it that happening. It's quite an incredible yeah. video. Uh, I, I actually, I've seen it a couple of times. I watched it just before and it's just like pulsating. Yeah, yeah, we um it was it was really weird. It was such a strange thing to see because we hadn't seen corals not really known for its behavior. We don't really look at its behavior and how it 
reacts to things. You know, we I think it's static. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Most people just think it's a nice, colourful rock. Uh, they don't look at it up close. And even research, you know, like, you know, we look at how tigers hunt or how um, elephants interact with each other and stuff like that, but we really don't look too deeply into how corals behave and respond to certain events. And this was something that we wanted to do. And when you see it, it's, yeah, it's a lot more dynamic and, well, arguably violent too, like because of the pulsing and the inflation and like some of the samples that we had, they inflated to 340% their normal body size. So you imagine you or I just all of a sudden having to get that bacteria out of us and we just inflate to 300% our normal size in order to do that. And it's, yeah, it's wasn't um, it wasn't a pleasant thing that the coral underwent. Um, it's actually quite be- the video is quite beautiful though. It's like you know the terrible thing. That's, yeah, it's quite beautiful. And for those of you listening, um, I'll, there's a link to these uh, to this video in the show notes. So just go check it out. Um, so basically, the the bleaching process is the coral trying to get rid of this uh, the algae, and the algae is a source of basically the main source of its food or its energy. Yeah. Yep. So, but this bleaching can cause the it basically can lead to the death of the coral is it that can correct? lead to the death and a lot of people have, don't one of the bigger issues that we have in communication here in uh the coral reef areas when people hear of bleaching they think everything's just dead and that's not the case you know there is middle ground bleaching just means that the algae has been removed and sometimes it's not completely removed it might just be partly bleached so when we do surveys up and down the coast, we document whether or not it's fully bleached, partly bleached, and how much it is actually bleached, these corals. And because the degree of bleaching kind of tells us how long the temperatures have been um, increased for in around that area and how, um, and basically just how stable the environment is in general. So we want to look at um, the densities of zooxanthellae or symbiodinium, the algae, um, to be able to work out exactly the dynamics of what's going on on the reef relationship with temperature as well, and of course atmospheric change. So, the most the well the most well known reef in the world is the Great Barrier Reef yep. uh, here in Australia. Um, firstly, how how old is this reef? So, uh, okay, so there's lots of well, studies I know, on I'm that. I'm sure right? it's <laughs> yeah. it's uh, always growing, or perhaps it well, has been growing up until now. It has been. So uh, the there are estimates that it is between 300 and 500,000 years old. So it's really old. It's pretty old. Um, yeah, it's very, very old. So there's uh, basically it's been growing for a very, very long time and a very, it's been growing for, oh, um, since, well, basically the reef as you know it now would have been just exposed. It would never, the sea level was much, much lower. Um, in the past and so as the sea level has changed and fluctuated and risen again to where it is today um, in this you know warmer climate that we have on earth um, we have the opportunity for the Great Barrier Reef to grow to the size that it is it would never have been as big as what it is in the past this is probably the biggest it's ever been. So climate change has helped it grow in a way? Is that? Is um, I wouldn't say it's helped what, it grow. What, what type of um, time frame are we talking? Like We're talking thousands and okay, thousands so like of past, years. Like you know, post-Ice Age, that increase in, yeah. to, in, in sea levels has caused it to grow to the degree that it, to the size that it is now. Okay. Yeah. So the last Ice Age, which was about 8,000 years ago, um, it was the Great Barrier Reef was um, a much in a much different state mm-hmm. to what you see it now. Um, but... The ocean has changed and it was a warmer, 
it was there was a warmer period before that ice age as well, which there was coral growth in, and it's just that as these um, ocean the, the sea level changes over time, um, we see a fluxing of the size of the Great Barrier Reef as well. So last year um, we experienced, or well, the Great Barrier Reef experienced, one of its worst coral bleaching events. The worst. The worst. Yeah, the worst in history. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I think it. it, it I think from memory, it affects like 93% of the coral or something yes. like that. Which is so we've got, to be care- yeah, we've got to be careful with that because like, uh, it gets misinterpreted a little bit. Um, I know that you're meaning it in the way it's, mm-hmm. as it has affected 93% mm-hmm. of the coral reefs. Um, and that's the way that it should be looked at. Not 93% of coral died. Yeah. And a lot of people have taken that and ran with that um, in both political spectrums. Um, and that's a bit unfortunate because that's not the way yeah. that we wanted the science to be communicated. It's just that 93% have been touched by coral bleaching, which is really dangerous levels. Mm. Okay. So what, of what importance is the reef? I mean, I mean, some environmentalists out there will be like, you know, it's just, there's all this life there, but I mean, you know, some people might not care so much. Uh, not, not that I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just for those listening out there, like, why is it important to have a uh, like, w- w- of what importance is the reef? I mean, I'm, I'm, there's definitely economic uh, reasons from, you know, tourism, but um, w- what else does it do? Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's economic benefits, obviously, tourism and things like that. I mean, globally, I think reefs are uh, estimated between 30, and I know this is these are large estimates, like, because they vary depending on what sources you go to, but some estimate that it can be up to, um, I think it's $35 trillion dollars, is how much globally reefs give to our economy. They have trillion? Trillion, because they supply basically all tourism and coastlines and stuff like that with protection. So you're protection capa- from? Um, storm surges and um, all basically erosion and things like that. So you keep stable environments in around ports and things like that because so we've got of the reef. These massive, basically, um, shields. underwater shields that yep. have been made. And, and sorry, these are made of. Um, uh, calcium carbonate, is that right? Like calcium the, carbonate, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so they are carbon sinks. They are big carbon sinks, okay. yes. And what is a, a carbon sink? So a carbon sink is essentially a capturing of carbon. So if you think of it, think of a sink at home, and that's basically what it is. It's carbon running into that sink and being trapped there. Uh, so when you think of trees, trees are about 50% carbon. So when a tree grows, basically it's taking... Um, 50% of its growth is going to be carbon. So it's, as it gets bigger and bigger, it's going to be taking in more and more carbon. And that's why forests are such great carbon sinks. Um, the Great Barrier Reef is a carbon sink because it produces a calcium carbonate skeleton, um, which um, carbonates play a large role in. And so obviously it's trapping carbon to grow. Um, so the healthier the Great Barrier Reef, the more effective carbon sink that we have. Yeah, and the more carbon it w- is being sunk, so therefore it's, yes. like it's being taken out of the atmosphere, right? Taken, so, well, yeah, it gets taken out of the atmosphere or, well, resi- like, so not directly out of the atmosphere. Well, through the yes, water because of so. the, what's it called? The, uh, I mean, this carbonic or the acidification of the ocean, is that due to carbon yeah, so we have yeah, yeah, so we have carbon dioxide, which is absorbed by the ocean. Again, the ocean itself is a carbon sink. Uh, so you actually don't even need coral, essentially, to just have the ocean as but a carbon sink. we don't want the we, ocean to turn into a big bottle of soda water, do we? Yeah, but that's exactly right. If you don't have the proper systems in place, the ocean's going to change dramatically. But, um, I mean, 
don't get me wrong, ocean acidification is a massive threat, especially as temperature increase, because the problems with, so the simple way to look at it is when things get warmer, more things fit in it. So if our ocean gets warmer, then more minerals dissolve into the, and um, elements dissolve into the ocean. Um, so that means more CO2 can be absorbed, which is kind of great, but the problem is it then starts affecting that environment. And if more CO2 is absorbed, then the acidity drops because um, when you say acidity you mean the ph not yes it becomes more acidic it becomes more acidic yes drops yeah yeah which is the ph dropping yeah yeah that could be confusing (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. so um and but normally there is um uh the carbonate if the carbonate levels are fine um in the ocean and they can be stable we have a buffer so um hopefully we're seeing effects of it at the moment but hopefully that buffer will um you know, continue to keep us protected from that ocean acidification for a little bit longer. But, you know, at the moment, there is evidence to suggest that it's already starting to take its toll, uh, unfortunately, but, you know. So can you just talk more about the the health of the reef, the Great Barrier Reef in general? Because, you know, it's a, what's what's it, it's on the uh, world, what's that list that it's on? So it's on, uh, it's uh, UNESCO protects it. So it's on the, um, uh, yeah, now I'm drawing a blank <laughs> as well. Uh, it's UNESCO's uh, World Heritage Site. Yeah, it's a World Heritage like Site. World Heritage Site. And yeah. didn't the Australian government try and change that? So yeah, that, no, they changed it. They changed it. Yeah, they so, didn't try and change it. They manipulated okay. uh, their report. They so they made, changed the report. That they made to- UNESCO, which was a very disappointing uh, from uh, evidence, reason, and logic's point of view because... You know, well, because, you know, we, we rely on uh, credible sources to analyze information and give reports out to the public so they can make their decisions when voting and things like that. If UNESCO is sheltering or protecting the bad decisions by a government, um, no matter what government it is, that's not in the benefit of the public and the voter. And not that's even just the voter, disappointing. But the thing is it's a world heritage site it's not it is just a world heritage site. you know australia's yeah, playground it, look the great barrier reef the pacific ocean is the biggest ocean we have here on the planet uh it essentially is the motor behind all of our climate uh the pacific ocean if it starts to change the entire planet will change so the the ecologies all around globally will change so if you look at the great barrier reef who Basically, it is the breeding ground, it is the food source, and it is the protection um, for all different, I think it's like 3.2 billion life forms or something like that in the Pacific Ocean. It was, I have to look up the numbers, but I can't. Mm. Basically, it's like it's somewhere close to like 70%, 60 or 70% of life in the Pacific Ocean revolves around um, coral reefs or the Great Barrier Reef. So... If we it's don't have, have knock-on effects to fishing, and yeah, oh yeah, massive yeah. knock-on effects. So, so it's not just about you know, it's a pretty thing to di- go yeah. diving around. You it's just yeah, it's a pretty thing to go diving around. But at the same time, like you said, it's not just going to affect us. Uh, like it's go- when you have whales that rely on krill and plankton and things like that, which often grow into the south, and they these things all drift through the Great Barrier Reef, and they all rely on the Great Barrier Reef for these cycles to continue you know so whales require the great barrier reef for breeding and protection while breeding when they move up and down the coast um if that starts to die off and that's no longer safe for them to do that then our whales are going to struggle 
you know, and this has all got big knock-on effects and you're already seeing it now. Fisheries are struggling as it is, uh, though the fishing industry here in Australia is struggling. So what's the, uh, what's the problem? As in, when I say, who's, who is the problem? Like, what is, what's happening here? For those, I mean, I'm sure many of those listening, at least uh, here in Australia, um, might know of, you know, the coal mines and all that that are Mm. going on. But um, just for those who might not, um, do you, could, could you uh, tell us about that? I mean, I think the coal mine is more of a symptom of the bigger problem. Um, the fact that we're happy to cash in um, short-term benefits for those that are already rich rather than long-term benefits for those um, here in Australia that aren't necessarily rich. I don't understand why the, you know, if you look at, say for example, Queensland's regional employment, 60% of Queensland regional employment is... Uh, revolves around tourism, right? So that's 230,000 jobs that are both indirectly and directly related to the Great Barrier Reef. If we lose that Great Barrier Reef, we lose those jobs. That's what we start to lose. We don't just lose, you know, a, a thousand jobs here. Like if we shut down, you know, if we end up stopping Carmichael coal mine or the whatever coal mine around, we're going to lose 800 to 1400 jobs. I mean, that haven't even been given out yet. Right, but if we continue to put pressure on the Great Barrier Reef, we're not—we're going to lose. We could lose up to sixty percent of regional Queensland's employment. That's two hundred thirty thousand jobs. This isn't a question about jobs. It's never been a question about jobs. It's been a question about um, where is the problem? where is the largest sums of money, mm-hmm. and and how important is that to those that are making the decisions? And that that's where we're having an issue. Yeah. So it's. And it's really, it's an ecological problem for the great, for, for the rest of the world, but it's also a huge economic issue. For yeah, it's, it's, I think it's 20, uh, 22,000, oh, I have to have a look, 20, but it's about 20,000 small jobs, like small um, businesses in Queensland rely on the Great Barrier Reef, right? And yet we're here trying to protect one large international um, corporation who has been shown to damage and leave a massive trail of damage everywhere that they go, ecologically and speaking, and both ecologically and financially as well, because those areas don't recover and they no longer become viable for future um, yeah. investment in yeah, those areas ice as soles, well. right? These big holes in yeah, the ground. And Tony Abbott say, uh, Tony Abbott, our Prime Minister, he said that wind farms were eyesores. But yeah, I, I actually really at, love wind farms. Yeah, well, I actually I'd invite him to look at a, a coal mine. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Well, what's worse to look at? It's better. Coal, coal's delicious, so oh, you know yeah. that's the difference. Yeah, yeah, not as delicious as the onions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> he loves biting into things, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, well, he didn't he? Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, I think that's one of the probably everything that we kind of see is a bit of a symptom of that. Whether or not it's the Murray Darling Basin, whether or not it's the way that we treat our farmers here in Australia, um, uh, the way that we treat our small businesses in tourism. Um, basically, the way we treat those that don't have more than a million dollars and uh, in their industry or in their businesses, uh, that's unfortunate. But, you know, nonetheless, um, we're here to protect the Great Barrier Reef and there's so many positive and great people that are working out there and working on protecting the reef and working on helping the farmers and that stuff will, we will eventually protect all those things and all those things will come around. We, it'll be a fantastic industry for a long time, it's just that we want to make it, make sure that happens. Um, and to do that, the best way to do it is for the public to vote um, and vote with, 
the right party that supports those kind of things, you know, supports our farmers, supports Australian jobs and things like that, um, and also engage in science. So your, the TED talk that you'll be uh, giving in a couple of months, two months? Anyway, yeah, I think it's soon. two months. It, 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 it's on. Um, it's like I think it's in April, yeah. maybe. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, you've got time. Yeah, you've got I've time. got a draft coming up, so that's <laughs> all I'm really focused on. So what exactly? Uh, what is it on? And because um, um, Brett and I, we've we've caught up um, in the past. We had a very good chat about science journalism and communication, or lack yeah. thereof, yeah. and uh, the need for you know even fact checking, uh, yeah. which is thankfully popping up. You know, we are now getting uh, you know big um, news uh, corporations or. Anyway, fact-checking is becoming more of a thing in light yes. of uh, the recent uh, election. Old, old you know, facts, alternate facts, yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah. yeah, old facts by the old right. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. So, talk, can you just talk about science communication? Uh, you know, in the twenty-first century and where we are and where we should be going, in your opinion. Oh, I think um, when it comes to fact-checking, there's not too much that we can do in the current industry. Obviously, there's going to be changes that are going to be made by people that are probably a little bit more creative than myself. I personally would like to see uh, scientists take a little bit more responsibility in the way that science is communicated. Um, I, I mean, in the end, who knows our work better than us? Not really many people, right? So that's the whole if, point, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so if studying, yeah, that's it. That's why we study <laughs> it, right? That's why we study it. That's why we report it. That's why we, you know, find evidence and supporting evidence, and we publish our publications. Um, but to do so, if our science is being reported on, it should be up to us to take part like, part of that responsibility. If it's being reported on inaccurately, then it's we need to call those people out. And we need to be able to have ourselves a, um, what's the word, a, a stage in which we can do it. And modern social media gives us that opportunity. Um, but so does, just in general, we can communicate with journalism again. Um, I think, you know, and this is going off um, a few studies and also my own personal experience. Uh, many scientists just distrust journalism. I mean, I mean... Uh, in the public's eye, journalism is at about, here in Australia, is about 21 to 27% trust levels. Um, so only 21% or 27% to 27% of people trust journalism here in Australia. That's actually, the, they're pretty much the lowest industry in Australia. They're down there. In terms there, of trust. Yeah, in terms of trust. Bankers have more trust than journalists. Um, yeah, so, and not only that, the um, they're down with, uh, who else is it that's down there? Uh, trying Drug to dealers. Yeah, yeah, basically. No, no, we wouldn't put them in that category, right? Um, but yeah, so like, and whether or not it's warranted or not, I, I personally don't know. I think, you know, the modern media landscape with clickbait journalism and um, copycat journalism is... Uh, it, it obviously corrodes that trust a little bit because, you know... I guess most it's all about getting ad impressions as well. That's, like, that's yeah, unfortunately and the source of their revenue. Yeah, it is. Absolutely, it is. And that's what I mean. Like, if you want journalism to be good again, you've got to have a source that fits their, mo their model. So if they need to make money, if they need to do it through copycat journalism, if they need to do it through clickbait journalism, then our science has to adapt to that to some extent. So, by so maybe the next publication you make needs to have a... You know, top ten reasons why coral is bleaching. Yeah. 
Yeah, you well, won't believe reason number six. Hey, that <laughs> our first publication was adapted to it. You know, we had time lapse material where you could put that video in there and it captured the imagination without a word being written. And people already knew just from the title, coral bleaching captured for the first time. Time lapse, bang, you've got yourself, your audience, your ad hits. It's easy, it's packaged. So science needs to become uh, more tailored and digestible for the modern media landscape. Of course, it also can go towards, you know, more traditional mass media, you know, like print and news and broadcast media. But, you know, this is the way that people are engaging with science more and more all the time, whether it's through Facebook or Twitter or even Snapchat now has a no their own news channel. So, you know, these are ways that people are engaging in the science. So as scientists, as communicators who are concerned with the way that journalism is representing science, the way that science in general is being manipulated and um, misrepresented to push certain narratives, then we should be the ones making sure that that doesn't happen by holding those that do it responsible, um, by putting out our own information to journalists and by building the bridges between us and journalism again. You know, find the good journalists, talk to them, get them to talk. If they want to write a story about you, if you see something inaccurate that they've written, contact them. Look, if they're professionals, they're going to be fine with doing that. Um, one thing that I also found that I could do, um, this is through my own experience, and some studies have also shown that um, the, one of the biggest problems uh, is actually the comments section. Yeah. Yeah. That is an entertaining and despicable yes, place. I mean, it is. It no matter is where you go, Facebook, the YouTube. The of the internet, oh, right? It's, but it's, it's ridiculous. What this study found is that those that engage in it in civilly can actually turn the tide of the comment section quite easily. And that if those, so they basically looked at... Um, so instead of getting mad, yeah, so just they had work, evidence man. based science, and then they looked at the comment section, and those that were engaging in the comment section aggressively could actually change the audience's point of view just from the comment section because they were aggressive, because in some ways they were the loudest. They didn't have to make sense, they just started questioning the evidence. And we've got a you know, if, if, if they get a lot of likes, it doesn't matter how correct they are, it doesn't matter, absolutely. Top. It just it depends so on who popular. was in that comment section at the time, you mm -hmm. know. Um, but us as scientists, this is our publication. There's no reason that we can't go into that message section and say, like, I, I mean, I did, did up you copy did this, and paste. Right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we were talking about it last time. So what exactly, how did you engage with these trolls? Yeah, well, so the easiest way to do it was source-based evidence. So I essentially um, did up a, a short amount, of, a short write-up um, when that was tailored to one or two questions. Um, you know, what is coral bleaching was usually, oh, how is this coral bleaching? You know, like most people were asking that, well, what is this? I don't see Coral doesn't look that white to me. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. So I had, oh, this is actually coral bleaching. And I explained exactly what it was. You know, this is a relationship breakdown. This is a symbiodinium, which is the green stuff that's being removed after the oxidation. Um, and if it gets removed long term for long periods of time, then we're going to eventually, essentially starve the coral. Um, so that's what the danger is. And then we would be able to say, and I would have sources saying those things. And then I say, and temperatures do rise. Like one of the concerns for a lot that I saw was temperatures don't rise that quickly on the reef. 
but I, they do rise very quickly on the reef and even daily they can flux between six to eight degrees. It's the prolonged changes that we're concerned about. Six to eight degrees, is that sounds substantial. Yeah, that's massive. So you can have these fluctuations quite rapidly on really hot days and really hot periods. So um, what we were looking at was those that change and when that change happens and it s is sustained, it doesn't just come back 12 hours later to being stable again. And um, what happens during that time? And that's what we were looking at with our research. And so we were able to show the publications that um, highlight changes in temperature and all these things. And honestly, the feedback, there was not a single negative thing that I got from that comment section. Not one. Everybody was automatically like, the f I had, we would have trolls there that would be like, oh, this isn't real research. And then you comment to them and they would be like, wow, thank you. I didn't actually expect the author of the paper <laughs> to contact me. This is amazing. Thank you very much. Uh, I don't really know what else to say. Thanks, but well, thank you. Know, I like, feel like, you know, I've, I've come, you know, I've just, I've gone through uni and even as a student, which this is going to sound uh, ridiculous, but I felt uh, detached from academia. Mm. I think, and if I'm a, you know, uh, if I'm going through a, you know, university and I feel that, that I'm detached from academia and, you know, the new science, how else would the, you know, how, how would the rest of the public feel? Yeah. So that's actually... Well, that's um, interesting that you say that. There's, um, it's called, uh, this disconnect is similar to what's called civil inattention. Um, civil inattention is a social scientists, uh, as social scientists put it, uh, is when um, the public is disengaged from um, science uh, through usually lack of communication. And that was easier in the past. Uh, so civil inattention, essentially back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, science was autonomous. You know, it just went on and it functioned and it really didn't do much. Every now and then there'd be a column in the newspaper about a new scientific discovery. If something amazing happened like um, a moon landing or, you know, a space shuttle launch or um, we had, or we had a major event like um, an earthquake or something like that, then people would engage in it. And so, but it, they were civilly inattentive until that time happened. They were happy to let science do science and just be science. And that's residual. You can see it now that we still have that feeling that science should be like that. But at the same time, we are so connected to it because of the way the media landscape has changed that it's not, people still feel uncomfortable in that situation. And so we need to make sure that doesn't happen in this landscape that everyone is civilly attentive rather than in yeah and it, well it just makes sense to be attentive i mean if we find out that you know god processed meats are linked to cancer which you know i I'm, i like bacon too much to really look into this but um <laughs> yeah i think that yeah. just being having this information available means that we can make better decisions about how we live our lives and live better healthier and hopefully happier lives as well yeah. And people have to understand that studies are just studies too. So, like, if you see a study and they say, hey, studies show that wine could be potentially good for you or whatever, there are probably studies showing that that isn't as well. Yeah, so, so don't, don't just look at one study. Don't just look at one sample size. That study didn't. So don't you just look at one sample size. So, um, And in the, in the days of, uh, you know, fake fake news, I fake think we news. need to be sceptical. I mean, I mean, I hate to bring this up, 
but like the the biggest one with the biggest manipula uh, manipulation of science was definitely in the last you know couple of years was the one where um, I think it was I hate I hate to say this smelling your own farts she uh -huh. um, <laughs> was cancer that that's not real no. Wait, but that, but that people that, that was reported. That kicked up, that kicked, kicked up the stink about that. Uh, you know, Sorry about that. You know, whatever. Good Morning Australia or whatever the morning shows are, they had it was everywhere, and the researchers were not happy about it either because that's not what they reported. And that was good that they stood up and they said, "No, you cannot report this." And everyone basically came out afterwards, other than the television show, the broadcast media, but like print media came out and said, "Sorry, this is actually inaccurate." And that's good because they held those communicators responsible. The damage was already done because it was just something that really kind of took off, mm. um, which is a shame to yeah. think that, you know, that was, everyone was just like, oh, well, that's great. But it was actually just a sulfur-based chemical uh, was shown to have, uh, uh, I think, a positive response or something with uh, cancer um, deterioration of cancer, or it, yeah. it could potentially play a role in it. That's all it was. It had nothing to do with farts. In fact, they never even mentioned the word, like, in, in or or any like gas exchange. You know, like I was, I was wondering when you know on this podcast, I'd be talking about farts. I didn't think it'd be within the first few episodes, but here we are. You yeah, know, yeah, we, we that's crossed exactly that bridge. Right. right. It hasn't deteriorated yeah. to conversations <laughs> about Nazis yet. So that's all um, that matters. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so. We'll get close to wrapping up. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say to the people listening? I think the important thing, uh, if, if people are really, really interested in the Great Barrier Reef, uh, I would suggest that you jump online and um, communicate, have a bit of a look through the ARC Coral Research uh, webpage. A ARC stands oh, for? Sorry. ARC is the Australian Research Council. Uh, they are essentially a public um, domain. Um, they are... Excellent. They're, they're independent in, in some, like, they're government based, but they're independent. Okay. So, um, these, there is no bias there, and I would recommend that you go there. The other good sources are the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Foundation also is quite good and often has, um, is related to the ARC. Uh, I would recommend that you have a look at those because, you know, short of going through the actual literature, they're the best sources that you can have on, um, understanding the Great Barrier Reef. The other side of things is just engage in all science. Um, I would recommend that the most important thing that you can do is make sure that you're just kind of up to date. You're looking at all different forms of science, especially those that contradict your opinion. Um, you know, if, if you've formed an opinion, you, de you need to know the other side of the story as well. Whether or not the other side of the story is right or wrong, it doesn't matter. You need to know what that other side is. So then you can understand why your evidence is important. Yeah. If, if, just so that you could get involved in an argument with them, you can back yourself up. And that's exactly right, because you're going to know where they're coming from. And yeah. you know, and if a flat worlder comes up to you and tells you why the world is flat, you know it's not. You don't just but laugh you, and also, say that you're an idiot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to say that's insane, but and then you need to continue. <laughs> but here's why. It's yeah, so and just, this is why it's insane yeah. because you need to understand where they're coming from. Look, that's the way that you're going to get them, uh, people to listen, is by hopefully getting them to understand your point of view because you've respected theirs. And I think that's, I think that's a valuable yeah. thing to do. So I think just begin with respect. I yeah. think that's an important one. Um, 
what's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Or Anyone wants to talk more about the Great Barrier Reef or science or science communication, uh, probably the best way is through Twitter yep. um, because it's just easy. Um, I'm just trying to remember what my Twitter handle is, though. Yep. Uh, yeah, see, I don't feel like in Australia, I might not be speaking for, for all of us, but I don't think we use Twitter that much. We, I'm, I'm looking to get back. I'm going to get onto it. So, um, yeah, yeah, Twitter's yeah. definitely not used enough. Um, in my opinion, uh, here, I, I think it's the more and more I use it, uh, the more I find that it's actually really, really valuable. I've uh-huh. built great connections. I have, um, through both journalism and science, I've built really good connections and I've reached a lot of different people. Uh, globally through our stuff. So, I mean, you know, I don't have a million followers or anything, but, you know, it's it has been uh, an experience. I, I definitely enjoy it a lot more than what I enjoy Facebook or yeah. something like that. So, um, we'll, we'll put your Twitter handle and, uh, you know, email or whatever else, however else you think people should get in touch with you um, yeah. on, on the show notes. And, um, yeah, we'll wrap up there. So, uh, Brett, thank you very much. No problem at all. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again to Brett Lewis for taking the time to chat. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. So before you go, I'd just like to talk a little bit more about climate change. Woo! So the issue with the Great Barrier Reef and Australia's carbon emissions is a great example of something called the tragedy of the commons. Now, the tragedy of the commons is an economic theory of a situation where people are within a shared resource system. So, the commons. And these individuals act independently according to their own self-interests and behave contrary to the common good of all users by depleting or spoiling that resource through their collective action. So, just think of a swimming pool. Sometimes, when you're swimming, you need to pee. If one person pees in the pool, it won't have too much of an impact on the quality of the water. But if everyone pees in the pool, you've got a gross problem. So just picture the Earth as a big pool and all of the countries as people. So I'm just going to talk about Australia, but this is applicable to every sovereign state out there. As we heard in the podcast, the cause of coral bleaching, and thus the degradation of the Great Barrier Reef, is rising ocean temperatures, which is something Australia can't do too much about, as climate change is a global issue. So firstly, I'll just define what a sovereign state actually is. So, it's a state with a defined territory that administers its own government and is not subject to or dependent on another power. So, a sovereign state only has a responsibility to its citizens, and while it's obvious that climate change will affect its citizens dramatically, there's not much one country can do in the face of this global challenge, especially since it's in a world of other competing sovereign states. So, back to Australia. In the context of the reef, it could do the right thing and try and move towards more environmentally friendly practices. Or it could take the temporarily easy route and free ride, hoping that all of the other countries in the world go green and reduce their emissions while making a quick buck of fossil fuel exports. And while we can sit here and blame countries for acting so selfishly, it's important to recognize that they're just playing the game as best as they can, sort of. And the rules of this international game are not really enforceable. So what do we do? Is it possible to hold countries in check? Climate change is at its worst, and a positive feedback loop has started. We need to meet this challenge head-on, now, or risk dire consequences for not only generations of people to come, but for all life on Earth. We've got the makings of a solution in mind, a global citizenship. While it's not a be-all, end-all solution, 
it's definitely a step in the right direction. So if you identify as being a human being first and foremost and recognize that we are bound by our humanity and this earth, head to www.globalcitizenship.today to explore an idea we have of what our future could look like. There will be episodes in the future that explore this idea in more detail. If you have any questions, please just get in touch. So thanks again for sticking around to the end of the show. If you are enjoying the podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes because it really does help with the success of a podcast and share it with your friends. Thanks again. And until next time, goodbye.